Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God said in His Word so that we can know what we should do. We believe that God has preserved His Word from generation to generation. As it says in Psalms 12, I think it's verses 5 and 6, God has faithfully done that. We have the evidence from archaeology for the Old Testament and the New Testament that we can be confident on the things that are said. There's a lot of critical critics who attack the Old Testament saying that Israel was never in bondage in Egypt, but there are fairly new archaeological discoveries that have proven that indeed they were. And um, I want to encourage you on your confidence that God has given us the word and that if we put our trust in it, that God will move in mighty and powerful ways. So it's good to see you guys. Um, I've been on a little bit of a vacation, um, on my anniversary vacation, um, coming back to do this Q&A. And uh, if you guys have a question, then write the word question down and then rewrite your question a couple of times, make sure that it's clear, and then go ahead and submit it, and we'll take a look at it. It's good to see you guys. I hope you guys are doing well. Our first question comes from our study uh, from this weekend. And here it's uh, simply, um, how does fear stop us from using the gifts God's given us? So on Sunday, we talked about the parable of the good stewards. Ten stewards are given each the same amount of money. It's pretty significant. And the first one to call an account provides 10 times as much. And he gets 10 cities because of that. This is a nobleman who's gone, a, gone on, a, to, on, a, on a journey to receive a kingdom. And uh, the guy that was given five, he gets and, and, get, and makes it five times as, as valuable. He gets five cities. That's his reward. But the last one is afraid of the servant excuse me, afraid of the nobleman. And so he hides it in a handkerchief. And let's put it up on the screen here, and I want to read this to you. Here's what he says to him. That's not the right one. Here's what he says to him uh, when he, he, he is finally called to give an account. Master, here is your, your mina. A mina is an amount of money, uh, which I have kept away uh, for you. Um, let's see, what did I do here? All right, let me get back here. Master, here's your mina, which I have kept away in a handkerchief, for I feared you because you were an austere man. You collect where you do not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. So ultimately, it was fear that kept him from investing that. Now, the word austere means severe um, and really does not apply to God. Not all parables had a direct application directly straight over. Nevertheless, it was fear that kept him from doing the things that he was supposed to do by investing the money. Uh, you and I have been entrusted with gifts, with talents, with the Holy Spirit. We're called to do the work that God has called us to do. And um, it, we, we can, from fear, not follow through. Maybe fear of looking silly, maybe fear of not being as good as someone else, uh, maybe fear, if it's public speaking, of being judged by other people. So fear can stop us. And fear is one of those devastating things. Uh, in uh, the Old Testament, when Rehoboam, Solomon's son, was such a jerk, God raised up a man by the name of Jeroboam. And Jeroboam was called by God to rule Israel, which was now a divided country, Judah and Israel. To call, to call Israel, but he was scared they were going to go back to Jerusalem and fall under Jeroboam again, Rehoboam again. 
And so Jeroboam built two calves, one in Dan and one in Bethel, and called Israel to worship there instead of going to the temple in Jerusalem. Fear caused him to lead his people in the wrong way. And I think it's always bad to make decisions based upon fear. And when God's entrusted us with something and we're fearful, it might tell us we're a little bit too worried about ourselves. I do a lot in training young pastors in teaching messages. And one of the things that I will tell them is don't worry about knocking it out of the park. Because when a young pastor is beginning to teach, they want their sermon message to be so good. They want, it, well, they want it to be funny. They want to tell jokes. They want it to be, have an impact. And uh, that gets in the way of just presenting the text. The first thing that we have to do is to be faithful with what God's given us. Not worry about how people think about us or whether we might come off looking bad. Um, in fact, we're not supposed to do anything out of selfish ambition anyway. But we're supposed to do things because God's called us to be able to do them. And so fear should really be put aside. If God's gifted you, if God's called you, then, hey, go out and do what God's called you to do. Um, I will tell young pastors, listen, your sermons are going to be bad. There's going to be bad sermons. It takes a while to really learn them. You can do your best and you can minimize that by making good notes, following an outline, wanting to cover the text well. Uh, but in time, you'll get better at the calling uh, that God has given you. You'll fan the flame of the calling that God's given you in your life. But when it comes to trusting God, sharing your faith, uh, maybe teaching, any call that God has anywhere on your life, if you will step out and start doing it, you are going to get better and better at it. Um, who says that just because you're gifted and empowered by it, that you're not going to make some mistakes or learn by a matter of use, how to use that thing better. So let me encourage you, if you're called to teach, if you're called to share with someone, if you feel like God's moving on you to share, don't be worried about what people are going to think of you, but instead, step out, be faithful with what God's called you to do, and faithfully serve God with it. Now, this steward had his mina, which is an amount of money, taken away from him and given to the guy with 10 because he wasn't faithful with it. He hid it in a handkerchief. It was given to the guy that was faithful enough to make 10. So God honors faithfulness. And the Bible says, be faithful in the small things and God will make you faithful in much. So I just want to encourage you, be confident. God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of a sound mind, be confident. And don't be so worried about what you're going to look like. Sometimes you're going to look bad, but that doesn't matter. If we come across looking bad, what does that matter? What matters is how God looks. All right, so thank you for joining me. Uh, that is our first question that came from our final study. If you guys were at our Bible study and had if, have any other questions about the parable of the stewards, I'd love to answer those. You can also ask questions about anything else that you want to ask, prophecy, um, apologetics, difficult passages in the Bible, discrepancies. Um, I'm not saying that I know all of the answers to all of those, but I would love to point you at least in the right direction in getting those things taken care of. I also want to say hi to Daniel and to Keith, our moderators. I really appreciate you guys. It's good to have you here. And we have Andre who has our first question today. And Andre has always has great questions. They're challenging. I love it. Um, we really do want to focus on hard questions. Um, Anybody can answer easy ones, right? And I'm not saying that I can answer it. I'm sounded a little arrogant, I know. I, I'm simply saying 
hey, let's look at the difficult aspects of the Bible and let's dive into them. That's the only way for us to really get the answer to it. So Andre says, when Jesus sent out his 12 apostles, he recommended or he commanded them, didn't recommend, he commanded them to shake the dust from their feet, Matthew 10, 14. Uh, anytime their words weren't received or heard, are we to do the same today? Thank you, Andre. And as always, really good question. So Jesus sent his disciples out in the middle of his earthly ministry. Uh, he sent them out two by two. He sent out the 12 one time and he sent 70 out at another time. He told them not to take any food with them, not to take any weapons with them, um, not to, uh, to go into a city. If they received him, then stay there. If they didn't receive him, then shake the dust off of the feet of that city. A little bit later on in the ministry, in fact, at near the end of his ministry, Jesus said, do you remember when I told you not to take a sword with you? Now I tell you to take two. And they rummaged through their stuff and they found swords and they said, Lord, we have this many swords. And they said, is this enough? And Jesus said, yes, that's enough. They didn't understand what he was saying. The, the guidelines he gave them in his earthly ministry were under the ministry of the Messiah specifically. And although we are doing Messiah work today, we're doing it in the church age, not in the age of the Messiah walking on the face of the earth. So things have changed and we are not to shake the dust off of our feet. I think more applicable to us, Andre, is not that we would walk away from someone who won't hear and shake the dust off our feet, but that we would, we would not cast our pearls before swine. If someone is aggressive, if someone's just attacking, if someone doesn't want to give proper, doesn't want to respond to what is a good proper answer, then you've got to ask yourself, am I casting my pearls before swine? He's not calling them swine. This is important. He's saying that you don't cast pearls before swine. And so you have someone who's discounting the gospel, something valuable we have, and they're not treating it with respect and they're mocking it and they're not open to the gospel. So don't cast your pearls before swine or give what is holy unto the dogs. Again, it's not an insult against them. It's simply saying they aren't open to the gospel. So that's really the application. The application that was given to these disciples when they were sent out during the ministry of Jesus, don't take a money bag, um, don't take any weapons, all of that was not for us, okay? That was for them, and that was changed later on, and um, we could uh, talk about more of the things that we have to do, but I think the closest thing that we have there, Andre, is that we are not to cast our pearls uh, before swine, all right? So we have a question here from Psychman. Psychman, good to see you. Psychman, in Florida, preparing to sail to Spain, Israel, etc. all the above. Um, prayers for safe travel, please. God bless you all as well. Well, very nice trip there, um, Psych Man. Nice. Uh, that should be awesome. Uh, Spain's beautiful. Uh, those other places are just going to be awesome trips for you. I hope that you are truly, truly blessed as you go and do that. All right. So um, we have another question from Daniel. And if you are joining us here for the first time, really glad you're here. Uh, we, this is TruthQuest Podcast, and this is our Q&A. We answer questions in the lens of Scripture, through the lens of Scripture. If you have a question, write the word question down in front of it, reread it a couple of times to make sure it says what you want it to say, submit it, give us also any places in the Bible you want to look up, and we can look them up together. So we have a question here from Daniel. Daniel, good to see you. Hope things are going well. Daniel says, I have heard timekeeping. I have heard timekeeping Matthew. Oh, I... <laughs> 
I need to just read what they say and not get in a hurry. I have, I have a hard time keeping Matthew 25, 11 through 30 talents and Luke 19, 11 through 27 straight, especially when Matthew talks about weeping and gnashing of teeth. Can you give more insight? So I think I can, Daniel, if I remember right, when the, the guy who buries the talent in Matthew has the talent taken away from him, then he, then he um, is cast into outer darkness. This would be a sign that this guy that buried his talent was not a genuine believer, that he was a tear, right? Jesus told the parable of the tares and the wheat. And that is where someone, an enemy came in and sowed tares into, a, um, into the, the enemy's field. And what do you do now? That a tear looked like a wheat, but couldn't be told until harvest time. He said, should you take up the tares now? This is like what the kingdom of God is like. And he said, no, wait until the day of harvest, and then you'll be able to separate them. And so what God is saying to us, Daniel, is that there are going to be false Christians in the church, but we're not to worry about that. It's not my job to figure out who is a genuine Christian and who's not, but there are going to be false Christians within the church. And this man, because he was cast into outer darkness, would have been that guy that, that was a false uh, believer. Now, in the parables of the Minas, the guy is called a wicked servant, but he's not cast out into outer darkness. And I think that this could tell us that he might be a tear. He might not be a genuine Christian. Remember, the Bible says, not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, is going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And some will say, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do miracles in your name? And he'll say, away from me, I never knew you. And so this guy could be one of those guys, but he might not be. I think the main difference between those two parables is one receives 10 talents in, the, in Matthew 25, one five and one one. So the emphasis on the different talents individuals get. And in the parable of the minas, they all receive one mina, and then they respond differently to what they've received. Um, I think the guy cast into outer darkness is obviously a non-believer in the talents. I probably think in the minas as well. I don't know that there's really a distinction there. I mean, the minas, he's a wicked servant. I guess you could be a wicked servant and still make it to heaven. <laughs> it would be barely, right? Uh, but but I, don't, I don't know. So I think that that is the difference between the two. All right, Daniel. So thank you very much for that. I appreciate it. Um, if you have more, if I didn't answer your question completely, Daniel, would you just kind of go ahead and give me a follow-up question on that? We have a question from Jari. Jari says, will children under the age be present at the Bema seat? Will they receive rewards or will they be in heaven just because they are also, will they rule during the millennium period? All right, so let's think about that. Let's think about uh, children before the Bema seat. Let's, let's just consider, first of all, children in heaven. And I think that this is important for us to understand. And that is that I believe that there is an age of accountability. I believe that uh, in, when God sent Noah to Nineveh, he talked about 2,000 who didn't know their right hand from their left. And I don't know if it should be called an age of accountability or a time of accountability. It's just when, when a person begins to understand and maybe enters into open rebellion. But other than that, then that child goes up into heaven. Now, I believe when they get up into heaven that they have, that their glorified bodies and their minds are no longer the mind of a child. Now, 
I could be wrong about this, but I don't know that I am. And so, um, when they're before the Bema seat, if there's anything that they've done that they could be rewarded for, then I think that they'll receive a reward. If there's not, then they won't. Um, I think the more opportunity that we have to be able to stack up treasure here on earth, Jari, the more we'll understand these particular things. So will children under the age be president at the Bema seat? I don't think so, but I could be wrong, right? Um, will they receive rewards? Um, will they be in heaven just because uh, be there? Um, and will they rule during the millennial kingdom? I don't, I don't think there's going to be babies there. I don't think there's going to be 90 year old people there. I think we're all going to be in our glorified bodies. And I think our glorified bodies are going to be probably a certain specific age. Um, we talk about in, in unearthly terms, we want to be that prime age forever, right? Whatever that prime age would be, 30 years old or 28 years old or 32 years old. I used to joke and say 44 years old was the perfect age because you had some earning power and you could still do the things that you could do uh, when you were younger. I'm going to say now that I think the perfect age is a little bit older than that, all right? Um, so thank you, Jari. Um, again, you can give me a follow-up if you want to talk a little bit more about um, the age of accountability and what happens to children when the rapture happens or when they die and they're in the intermediate state, are they still like children and do they still need to grow up? I think those are some interesting questions. I don't know that we have all the answers to that, by the way, but I think there's some interesting questions. So um, we have a question about the minas here. Um, it looks like Larissa. Uh, how does the mina apply to starting a business? Any f um, and starting a business and failing at it and losing all your money. Does that make one a bad steward of your money? Um, Larissa, no, I'm not going to say that at all. Um, in the beginning of the study, I talked about the fear that kept you doing from what God wants you to do. And that even though you're called, even though you might be a pastor, even though you might have the gift of teaching, you're going to give some bad messages. Again, this is this is an encouragement I give to young pastors. It might not seem like an encouragement to them, but believe me, you need it when you're a pastor and you're teaching because you're going to do a bad sermon. You're going to teach a bad sermon. And you need to know that. You need to be ready for it. Um, this kind of applies in the same way. Let's just say that you're an entrepreneurial and you go out and you start a business and the business fails. What I look at that with as is school. You've learned what doesn't work. You've got to honestly evaluate why it doesn't work. And I have a, a little bit more insight here, Larissa, than just a pastor. I don't know that this is connected to the parable of the minas because the parable of the minors, minas is the gifts God's given you. So let's just say that you started a ministry and the ministry failed. That doesn't even mean anything either because sometimes God allows failure to teach us lessons. Failure, a lot of times you can, you can, Put up with failure. Successes can be really, really difficult. Um, but I also kind of had, a, I had an entrepreneurial spirit, entrepreneurial spirit since the time I was 17 years old. I started my first business at 17 years old. I wish I could reach my card here. My mother-in-law gave me the very first card I ever made for Southwest Custom Trim, which was the business that I started. I started an auto upholstery business at 17. I had five of them. I sold one of them. Um, one of them failed. And the whole time I'm learning. And when, when we were called, went through a shepherding school, began to teach um, 
in Calvary Chapel of Albuquerque for Skip periodically. And um, then he encouraged me to come out to Tucson and start a church. Because I had started five businesses, coming out and starting the church was very easy for me to get my hands around. Look, let's just go see what God's doing. If this thing is successful, then great. Then God called me and it's great. If it doesn't work, what's the worst that can happen? I'm back to starting a business. I, I still had a business, actually. I'm going back home and I'm going to run the business that I have. And so, no, I think I heard Glenn Fry from the Eagles. This is an interesting analogy, isn't it? Talking about writing songs. And he was having a conversation with Bob Seeger, who was a songwriter. And Glenn Fry hadn't written any songs yet. And Glenn Fry said to Bob Seeger, what if I write, what if I write a bad song? What if it's bad? And Bob Seeger said, it's going to be bad, but you keep writing and you keep writing and you keep writing. And sooner or later, you're going to write a good song. Well, I kind of apply that to, to a young pastor getting ready to do messages. What if I, what if my message is bad? It's going to be bad, but you keep doing it because you're gifted because you're called, because what else are you going to do? If you are called to do it, even if every one of your messages are bad, but you're called by God to do it, then you've got to do it, right? You got to be faithful to do it. And um, Larissa, I think here, no, you're, you're not, you were not the, the bad steward or the wicked servant because your business failed. Businesses fail. And you learn, and, and you learn from it. It doesn't even mean it was that bad of an idea. There may have just been some mistakes that were made along the way, or maybe not even mistakes, maybe things you could have done better that would have, allowed your, would have allowed your business to succeed. The thing about someone with an entrepreneurial spirit that will step out and take a risk and, and plan a business is, hey, you can always do it again because what's the worst that can happen? You be, you're right where you're at now, but sooner or later, it's gonna end up being successful. Um, most people that plant businesses have several failures before they have successes. I think the only reason my first business succeeded I was 17 years old. I did it out of my mother's garage. I didn't pay her electric bill. All I did was do people's car seats and set it up. I, I advertised in the thrifty nickel, the dandy dime. And then I took the, scheduled their car seats, got up, took them, did them, and, and took the money. And I didn't have to pay any bills. My mom, I didn't pay nothing back to my mom, my poor mom. Um, so she paid for all that electricity while I was doing it. And um, by the way, that's when I was dating. Um, shortly after that, I started dating my late wife, Lisa. And um, I would do a car seat and make a hundred bucks. And this is in the 70s. And, um, and she must have thought I was just rich because I had money every day. Every day I'd go and spend the money that I made um, because I didn't have to do it. So maybe if I had the responsibility of paying all the bills, it would have failed. Like I said, I had a business I sold. I had a business that I closed when I came out here to start the church. And I had a, um, a one that I had to close and fail. Um, and I'm trying to think of the other ones. We had five of them. So I just think one of them failed and I don't see that as a bad thing. All right, Larissa, um, I would just encourage you to, to seek God again. See if God wants you to do it again. Um, does that make you a bad steward of money was your question. Um, I don't think it makes you a bad steward of money. I mean, there, there needs to be a lot more details to figure out. Maybe if you told me a few of the details about it, I might go, yeah, that wasn't being a very good steward. But I, but I think it, just in the most part of answering this genuinely, going out and starting a business is not a bad thing. It could be a good thing for you. Uh, there's a lot of things to learn from it and it can be very powerful. All right, so thank you very much. I appreciate your question. I hope, um, I hope the Lord really blesses you. 
I hope that you go out and, and, and that God opens up doors for you uh, to be able to start a business and bless the people around you. So we have um, a question here from Matt, Matt Grossman, Crossman. Matt, good to see you. Um, hope things are going well with you and your family. Looks special here. Um, one of my favorite defenses for the truth of the gospel is that the apostles were martyred for what they preached and believed in. Plain devil's advocate, what would I say if someone responded to that defense was, well, a lot of Muslims have given their lives for something that they believe in. 9-11, suicide bombings, etc. I've actually had this question, Matt, um, where someone is literally, I was talking to someone about it. I used the example of the disciples not giving up a lie. So the disciples are supposedly, right, hid the body, then went out and spread the gospel. And the gospel changed and they kept this lie until death. Each of them being tortured. That's different than this question. So when this question is asked, well, what about Muslims that give their lives? Hey, these guys didn't believe Jesus rose from the dead, so they were going to go out and drive a, a plane into a building. That's something radically different. These guys are willing to commit jihad. It's not even about suicide for them. It's about killing the enemy. They do that for what they believe because they believe they're going to get the 70 virgins in heaven or because they want to be faithful to Allah. I don't want to say that I know all of their motives as to why they do what they do, but they're doing something wicked and evil in murdering people because they believe in it. It's not an eye, They weren't eyewitnesses to it. They just heard it. It's been radicalized and they believe in it. The disciples were totally different. These were guys who saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. And so because of that, they were willing to die for their faith, to be tormented for what they believed and for their faith. And they kept it. Let's just say, see, a Muslim who, let's just say you get a Muslim and you torture him to, to get him to, to deny Allah. And he doesn't do it. Well, that's because he believes in his heart that Allah is true. And he's not going to give it up. But let's say the disciples hid the body and now they're being tortured. They know it's a lie. Do you see the difference? Do you see how this, this, um, this question here really doesn't hold any merit? Because the disciples would have known it was a lie. Then you torture that person who knows it's a lie. They don't have confidence like someone who is in Islam who's being tormented to, to deny Allah because they believe it. These guys know it's a lie and were, were all of them except for John were martyred. And this is an incredibly... This is incredibly powerful evidence that they stood fast and firm for Christ. So do you see the difference? There's a huge difference here. This is a false equivalent. If it would be like you taking me and torturing me and Lord willing, if you did that, saying deny Jesus and, and there's no, I, I, I go to my death without denying it because I believe it with all of my heart. That's one thing. But what if I was lying? What if I really didn't believe it? What if I was in it for some other reason? Then you torture me and you say, deny Christ. I'm probably really gonna easily go, I deny him because I'm in it. What if I'm just in it for money? And then someone's torturing me. Well, if I'm in it just for money, why would I, I'm gonna let myself be tortured to death? I'm in it for money. So I have nothing to gain by losing my life. So I'm just gonna splurt it out. What would they have had to gain had they gone all the way to, to the tomb 
without spilling one of them, two of them, without spilling that they had found the body and that they had hidden the body. So this is a false equivalent. I hope that makes sense, Matt. Um, if you can just go ahead and give me a thumbs up uh, within uh, in the comment section, that way I can look at it later on and know uh, that I answered your question. But this is a false equivalent here. It's, it's nothing like it. It's not apples and apples uh, because uh, they did not make anything up. They And that's why. And what you believe, you'll die for. There's a lot of people who believe what we die for. We're not saying that's the amazing thing about the disciples. We're saying that if they died for a, a lie, that would be the amazing thing about the disciples. All right. So thank you, Matt. I appreciate that. We have another question here. All right. Let's go ahead and bring this in from Sarah. Sarah says, do you not have in-person services on Wednesday night? Where I grew up in California, church was Sunday morning and evenings, Wednesday evening and Bible study. I miss it. Yes, Sarah, we will have a service at both of our campuses tonight, one at six o'clock and one at 7.15. And when we started the church and for a lot of years, we, um, we had services on Sunday night as well. Not only on Wednesday night and Sunday morning, but Sunday night. I remember just being exhausted. I remember when we had, um, we had four services on Sunday morning, a Sunday night service and a Wednesday night and just being exhausted on Monday night, on Sunday night and not being ready to go back to work by the time Monday was over. And um, so we finally dropped off and we don't have a Sunday night service. I had a friend of mine who would say that Sunday night services are just for pastors who want to teach and that's it. And the, the attendance was lighter than the Wednesdays or the Sundays. But if we felt like that's what God wanted us to do, we would do it. We just felt like it was time to change that. And a lot of churches had changed and gone from Sunday nights. Very few still have them. But we do have a Wednesday night service. We're going through the book of Galatians right now. I'm not teaching it tonight because I'm supposed to be on vacation. We ended up doing a staycation instead. And um, I had a little bit of work done on my studio here. And after getting the work done, I thought, let's go ahead and um, have a Q&A today. And um, so here I am uh, answering some questions and encouraging you uh, to walk close with Christ. So yeah, um, but Wednesday night services are going away. A lot of churches are no longer doing them. And they'll do that, they'll have the Wednesday services go, but they'll put more emphasis on home fellowships, which is not a bad thing. Each, you know, to each church has to seek God and decide what they're going to do. I love having a Wednesday night study. And for right now, I wouldn't give it up. I wouldn't want to give it up. We also have two campuses. So we have a six o'clock and a 715. I finish up on one campus, then drive over to the other campus uh, to do that. And we have uh, four services on each, um, two services on each campus in the weekend. All right. So um, thank you, Sarah. Yeah, go to Wednesday night services. Um, I love it. I feel like those that are at Wednesday night service are, um, are kind of, are kind of like the heart of the church. I think that they are there when, when I want to really share something that God's laid on my heart rather than giving it to everybody on Sunday morning. Cause I think you get a lot of different levels of commitment there. I think you get a people who have higher commitments going on Wednesday night. And so I think it's a good thing. 
That's not saying that's going to be some kind of a sign that I know you're closer to God because you go to church on Wednesday night. I'm just saying that's probably true, that someone who's carnal isn't going to be going to church on Wednesday night. And I'm not saying that if you're not going to church on Wednesday night, you're carnal either. I better stop before I get myself in too much more trouble. So we have another question here from um, uh, Nightingale. Nightingale says, um, question, can you provide us with scripture that indicates that we should own and pack a weapon? Example, guns. We are in the mindset that we should have trusted God and our weapons are spiritual. Thanks. Um, So when the night Jesus was arrested, you remember that Peter pulled out a sword and cut off the high priest's ears. You remember that when Jesus was told that he was going to, um, that, that Jesus told his disciples, I told you not to carry a sword, but now I changed that. You can go ahead and carry a sword. That his disciples pulled out certain swords. Is this enough? I don't think that the idea of self-defense or owning a weapon is bad. And I don't think it's, it's somehow sinful. I think that you and I could, could trust in weapons instead of trusting in God. But I don't think having a weapon for self-defense in your home is a bad thing. I don't think it violates the turn the other cheek or the weapons of our warfare are mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. Our spiritual warfare weapons battle against spiritual things. And if someone were to attack us and we had a weapon to be able to defend ourselves, I believe that we would be able to defend ourselves. Now, there are pacifists who do not believe that, and I respect that. I think that we can have differences. This is a bit of an in-house discussion. I realize that in the day that we live, whether or not you should have a gun or use a gun would be is debated, but I don't think that the turn the other cheek passage has anything to do with whether or not we could have a gun or should pack a gun or should, or should carry a gun, all right? I think it's okay to do that. Um, I think it's a good thing to be trained. You used to have to get a concealed carry permit in Arizona. Uh, you don't have to do that anymore. And I, I, think it's, I think it's okay to defend yourself. I would defend my wife, our home, uh, myself, if uh, someone broke into my house. So, um, which I guess that tells you I have a gun, doesn't it? <laughs> um, doesn't tell you how many. No, I, yeah, yeah, <laughs> like I said. Um, I don't think that our spiritual weapons have anything to do with the spiritual weapons or that we are supposed to be pacifists um, and just lay down our lives. Although that could be the case when we're under persecution for the gospel, that we might just submit to that. But as far as um, someone attacking us or mugging us or trying to break into our house, that we would not be able to defend ourselves with a gun, I don't think that that is biblical at all. I think that that we can see other things. We can see um, other passages that will help us to understand that. All right, Nightingale, I hope, uh, again, as always, if you have a follow-up question, you're welcome to answer that in a future Q&A or now if somehow I did not get it quite right. So we have a question from Paul. Paul, good to see you. Paul joins us from Facebook. Paul says, in several areas of the Bible, it appears Jesus is alone speaking to God. How did the disciples know what to document when Jesus was alone? 
For example, John 17, when he prayed to God, or when he was tempted by Satan. Do you have any opinion on why Jesus did not write a document, any scripture himself, explaining his experience? All right, Paul, this is a very good question. Uh, First of all, we don't know if Jesus was alone in John 17 in John 17. Uh, he, this, is, this is a prayer that is only documented by John, but we don't know if he's alone. Uh, we know that Jesus went about a stone's throw away from the disciples and then prayed fervently to God. And maybe they heard it. He was praying fervently. Maybe they heard it. We don't get a lot of details of all the things that he prayed, but we know that he prayed three times. Father, if this cup can be removed from me, then remove this cup from me. It could also be that the Holy Spirit provided for the authors of the New Testament supernatural experiences about what Jesus said. Uh, And I don't know how much of that happened. It seems that God worked through the natural senses of a person. And so I don't know if there's anything, um, I've heard this brought up about when Jesus went in to talk to Pilate and he has this conversation with Pilate about the truth. How do we know what Jesus said in that particular situation? Again, maybe, maybe, maybe John, who was, remember, John was the family of the high priest. Maybe John had some access to soldiers who were there with Pilate, who heard it. We just don't know. The Bible just doesn't tell us. So I think that we could go through all of the areas where Jesus is alone and we have things recorded about it and we could bring up those questions. Um, But I don't know that we're told, like I said in John 17, that he was alone or that they couldn't hear him when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane or that there wasn't someone else who could be a witness to Jesus when he's talking to Pilate or to other people or that God might have supernaturally told them. God supernaturally told people in the Old Testament, part of the Old Testament is written because God told them to write it and they wrote what God told them. The New Testament seems to be different. It seems to be them calling out upon God, writing letters of responses, um, God calling them to write it, rather I mean, and, and then um, them responding kind of an, out of an open heart. Let me read this through again, make sure I've got it. In several areas of the Bible, it appears Jesus was alone speaking to God. How do his disciples know what to document when Jesus was alone? Um, and again, I, I would love to, an interesting question to me, to see if we can find anything that we have where Jesus was alone. Um, I know it says, and maybe Jesus shared some of the things that happened when he was alone as well. We know that he couldn't in the Garden of Gethsemane because he's arrested right after the Garden of Gethsemane, but there's no reason to think they might not have overheard or that God couldn't have shared it with them. Um, When his disciples prayed to God or when he was tempted by Satan, right. And, And what makes us think that maybe Jesus didn't tell his disciples about that, about the temptation that was by Satan, or that God supernaturally told it to someone, like God supernaturally told someone in the Old Testament about Eve and her temptation. Do you have any opinion why Jesus did not write uh, or document any scriptures himself explaining his experiences? Um, Why didn't Jesus write scripture? Let me think about that for a minute. Um, I think because he was going to, 
I think the way he chose to do it was to make statements and have people hear it and document it and write it down and hear it from their different perspectives and through their different ears. That's what God wanted to do. And rather than Jesus writing scripture, he certainly could have done that and we would have the documents of Jesus, but that's not the way he chose to do it. And Jesus could have certainly have done that, right? Because Jesus could write. And so, I mean, we think he could speak Latin because he spoke Pilate. He spoke Hebrew because he could read the scriptures. He spoke Aramaic, which was a common language of their day. And a lot of the, the certain statements that Jesus makes were told that they were in Aramaic. And so um, it's a why question. It's an interesting question to me, but it's a why question. You know, why didn't Jesus write? I don't, there's a why questions are really difficult to answer, but I find it intriguing as well that Jesus did not write any scriptures. I bet there's a reason why. It may simply be, I'm just spitballing here, right? I'm just thinking off the top of my head, I'm thinking out loud. It may simply be that he wanted his disciples to have that responsibility, that they would be the ones who would do this. That might simply be, you know, what God was doing. All right, Paul, I think that's a great question. Um, a lot of interesting stuff there. Very thoughtful, good, good, good stuff. All right, so we have another question. And this is, um, comes to us from Dan. Dan joins us from Facebook. Dan, good to see you. Glad to have you join us. If you're joining us for the very first time, really glad to have you here. If you have a question, then write a, the word question in front of your question, then write out your question. It can be on anything. Um, and uh, we'll take time to look at it, but our desire is to look at it through the lens of scripture to see if the Bible, if, if we can think, you know, just kind of point you in the right direction on how to use the Bible to answer uh, different struggles or different things that we might have that we go through. Um, so question, in thoughts of one mind, can antichrist spirit plant or influence a man's thoughts? Um, even though the word says to think on these things. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate that question. Um, I might even add to it a little bit. Uh, the spirit of antichrist. What about demons? What about Satan? That what are the fiery darts of the enemy? So we're told to put on our, our armor and to have the shield of faith that puts out the fiery darts of the enemy. Well, fiery, um, the shield of faith, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10.10 10 tells us. So we hear the promises of God, we trust them, and now we have faith. That's where faith comes from. Faith comes when you believe what God says. You believe that God raised him from the dead. The Bible says that the tomb was empty. He is not here, he is risen. And when you believe that, you have faith. And so a shield of faith is believing what God says. And why does it put up the fiery darts of the enemy, which would be doubts, I would think, maybe lies like he did with Adam or Eve. And the question is, does Satan have access to our minds? Here's the thinking of some that have kind of sat down to, to write this through. And there's a couple of different books that have been written on um, the topic of our minds and, and our chapters, at least in books, on whether Satan has access to them. Some believe that our thoughts are in the spiritual realm. Like when I, I, I'm thinking a thought, I'm thinking of something right now. Can you guess what it is? If you guys can put down in the comment section what it is, I'll give you, I don't know, bonus question. Um, uh, now, when I'm thinking of that thing that I'm thinking of in my mind, is that in, just in my mind? 
Now, does God have access to it? Obviously. God could answer. Okay, now I'm not only thinking of it, I'm asking for it. Now, you know it's something to eat, and I want it, so I'm asking God for it. Now, did God hear that? Did God hear my request when I think it? So Satan couldn't do it? I heard someone say one time, when you pray, don't pray out loud, because then Satan will know what you're praying. Pray in your mind so that, that only God can hear. If that were the case, then maybe we'd get that direction in the Bible, but we don't. I, and I'm trying to think if I can have a scripture that I can think about that. Um, so Peter is asked by Jesus, who do you say I am? He says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father in heaven did. So Peter was able to hear from God. A few minutes later, Jesus is talking about his death and resurrection. And Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. And when he takes him aside and rebukes him, he says to him, um, get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but you are mindful of the things of men. Or, or really of the devil, of man. So he's got his own thoughts. He's got Satan that has somehow influenced him and he's got thoughts coming from God. So I do think that Satan is able to influence us somehow, place thoughts in our minds. He certainly can because he's the God of this world and he's behind billboards that bring us temptation. He's behind commercials that bring us temptation. He's behind other, other kinds of things that tempt us, okay? So um, he's behind that to some degree. But does he have access to our minds is, uh, you know, I think an, an interesting question. And um, let me go and, and read this again just to make sure uh, that we've kind of got that squared away. Um, thoughts of our minds, can Christ's spirit plant or influence a man's thoughts? Can Antichrist spirit? So I'm going to say I, th I think it can. I think that as we look at Scripture, we kind of see that, even though the Word says think on these things. So we have the, the ability to be able to shun them, right? Take captive every thought to the obedience of Jesus Christ. Do we have to think on these things? I'm not going to think on those things. I'm going to put them out of my mind um, and I'm going to think on the things of God. I don't think the fact that Satan might be able to plant thoughts in our minds, whether he can or can't, I think he can, but whether he can or can't, everyone has intrusive thoughts. And those intrusive thoughts need to be pushed away. They may be things that would terrify you. They may be things that you're scared of. They might be things that, that you, have to, you struggle with. But when you have an intrusive thought, you want to think on whatever's true, whatever's honest, whatever's holy, whatever's pure. Think on those things and take your thoughts captive. Um, so I don't think it really matters to us much whether or not Satan can put thoughts in our mind or hear our thoughts. I kind of think they're in the spiritual realm and Satan is in the spiritual realm and God's in the spiritual realm. And I kind of think that these things are an open book as much as we like, might, might like to think uh, that we can keep things uh, kind of private for ourselves. I don't know if we are really able to do that. All right, another really good question. I appreciate that. Um, let's see, looking for another question here. If you're new here and you are just joining us, really glad to have you guys here with us. Um, I've got another question here from Jari. Jari says, follow up, thank you for that. What about someone who with severe mental condition and had a mind of a child when they were alive on earth and 
they be judged for the gifts they used at, well, they be judged for the gifts they used at the Bema seat. So, um, yeah, Jari, I think that this does go along with your, with your first question. So the first question that you had was when will children be in before the Bema seat? And I said that when we're transformed, I believe that we will be, that, that we'll be adults standing in the presence of God, whatever exactly that means. I don't know, but we'll be adults. Um, and I think that someone who has, um, a, some kind of a handicap mentally, and they can't make responsibilities for themselves as like a child doesn't know his right hand from his left. And I think they'll be of a sound mind. There'll be no more illness, no more any of those things. And remember, you're judged by what you have. And so the good things a child did, I think it could be rewarded for. A good thing someone who has a mental handicap could also be judged for rightly for what they had done. And I don't think that there would be any problem with that at all. Um, so yeah, again, the, the concern for God was that they didn't know the right hand from their left hand. That was the concern uh, for God. So thank you for that follow-up, Jari. I really do appreciate that. Um, looks like we had another question here. I wanna say thank you guys for joining me today. We've got a few more minutes. If you have another question, just write the word question in front of it or put a question mark, write out your question, reread it a couple times, make sure that it makes sense and um, we will talk about it. All right, it's been good to see you guys. Uh, we are, first of all, taking questions from our previous studies. So we had a study last week on the, the parable of the, of the stewards, the 10 stewards. And um, this coming up weekend, we're gonna be talking about Jesus weeping as he enters into Jerusalem, the destruction of Jerusalem and some prophecies. Uh, so we will be looking at that. So we have a question here from Debbie. I'm gonna go ahead and bring that in here. Debbie, good to see you. Uh, can you clarify for me the declaring of Elijah coming in Micah 4? I'm not sure if I understand it well. What a packed Bible book for such a short time. Malachi or Puritelling Malachi, very bad pastor joke, right? So for... Um, Let's just go ahead and pull this up on the screen. I'm not sure if, so um, let's just see if I can get to that point. For behold, the day is great, burning like an oven and poured, yes, out on the wicked. Um, all right, here we go. So this is verse five, right? So behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their father, lest they come and strike the earth with a curse. All right, so Jesus said of John the Baptist that if you can handle it, he was Elijah. So it doesn't mean he was exactly Elijah, right? But he was like Elijah. Um, or he came in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. And then he said, and Elijah is going to come first. So there is still a time in the future where Elijah is going to fulfill the very things that God called him to fulfill. Elijah is going to come first. Um, I believe that Elijah could be one of the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11. Uh, they testify in Jerusalem 
And I know some people question whether or not they're Jewish, but I think Israel is in the tribulation period. God's dealing with the nation of Israel. I think that these two would be Jewish. Um, I've talked about Enoch and Elijah. If that was the case, it would represent a Gentile and a Jew, then the Jews, the Gentiles and the Jews. Um, but I think that Elijah will return. And I think that this passage did talk about John the Baptist. Jesus said that he was the greatest of all the prophets, which is interesting. And that he is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John, but that Elijah will come back. And if you can handle that, Elijah will return. So, um, let me just get back here and see if, um, can you clarify for me, Elijah coming in, Mal um, uh, in um, Malachi uh, 4. So, yeah, I think that Elijah is going to come and before the great and terrible day of the Lord, even as it said. It's interesting that Elijah was taken up in a, 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 a chariot or separating it. Yeah, taken up in a chariot, separated by a whirlwind from Elisha. And then, then he didn't die. Enoch didn't die. So those may be two, the two witnesses um, or the law and the prophets being represented there, maybe Moses and Elijah and the discussion over Moses's body by Satan and, and um, by, by, yeah, by Satan and Michael the archangel, which is interesting as well that Michael wouldn't say the Lord, but wouldn't rebuke him openly, but said the Lord rebuke you. And maybe there's something for us to learn there. So um, hopefully that gives you a little bit of information to clarify somewhat Elijah, it's a bit of a mystery, but that's okay. It's all right that there are certain things that are a little bit of a mystery for us. We know that John the Baptist played that role, so it will be something like that, coming and preparing the hearts of people to be able to follow after the Lord. And uh, maybe we'll see Maybe we'll see Elijah come on the scene pretty soon. Maybe it will be after the tribulation period. I am not quite sure. So we have another question from Facebook. And uh, it's about Luke 18, 17. Let me take a moment to look that up here. Um, let me read the question first. Um, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a child will by no, uh, will by no, by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay? Right, enter it. Please explain more. Uh, explain more. Clarify. I want to make sure that I understand this. Thank you. And um, yeah, I can see why you would want to make sure uh, that you understand it. So Jesus takes a child, puts it in front of him, and says, if you want to be, if you want to enter into the kingdom of heaven, then you've got to become like one of these children in order to enter in. I'm so glad that he didn't put a professor in front of him. Say, you've got to become like this professor or a man of great faith. You've got to become like this man of great faith to enter the kingdom of God. But he put a child. What is it? that a child has that we have to have in order to enter into heaven. Trust, childlike faith, believing what God says. A child is humble, knows that they are, they are dependents, knows that they need the people that are around them. And so when we come to Christ, we come humbly. Children are humble. When we come to Christ, we come asking. Children are full of questions. When we come to Christ, we ask to be forgiven. Children want to make things right with us. They don't want us to be angry with them. They want to make things right. That's a really good thing. So I think all of these are things, ways in which a child, which we need to become like a child in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
I think it speaks of those kind of things. If you are proud, if you are arrogant, if you're a know-it-all, you don't generally don't find those things in children. Generally, <laughs> maybe maybe you say, I know a child like that, but, but I don't know. Most often, you don't find anything like that among children. Uh, so the things that would keep you out of heaven, children have what it takes to be able to enter into heaven. And so we want to become like a child. Another thing that happened there was that they gave a warning that Jesus gave a warning. If you, when you hurts these children, it would be better for you if a millstone were tied around your neck and you were cast into the sea. So not only that, but God protects children who are, who have a certain innocence because they don't know their right hand from their left hand. All right. So thank you very much for your question. Thank you for joining us. It's good to have you here. I think this may have been your first time joining us or asking a question. If you're here for the first time, say hi. Uh, it's good to see you. If you have any more questions, we're almost done. We'll be done here just in a few minutes. Um, I'm not teaching tonight, so I might be able to go a little bit longer. We'll see if I just take some more time to answer some questions. Uh, usually, I've got to get out of here to be able to get down to teach, but um, I'm on a staycation. You say, what are you doing? A Q&A on your staycation. I was bored out of my gourd, and I missed you guys, and I wanted to come and, uh, and do a Q&A. All right, so it's good to see you guys all here. I love the interaction that's happening as we're building um, this place. Um, so, um, as we're building this place and I love the, the connections that we're making, I believe that there's real fellowship, uh, that takes place. And I want to encourage you, uh, to get involved in church. If you, if you, if you don't go to a church, take time to find a good solid church to go to and believe in. So we have a question from fact, check these hands, fact, check these hands. Good to see you. Glad you joined us. Um, they say, I know our bodies will change instantly at the rapture. But do you believe the rapture itself is instant? Will those left behind watch us get caught up? Um, so again, great question. And thinking about the rapture of the church is always, um, well, it's always such a difficult thing because it seems so strange and yet it's a promise to comfort us. Christ is coming back for us and we are going to meet him in the air. And according to 1 Corinthians 15, we are going to be changed in a moment and in a twinkling of an eye. People will ask questions like, do we hear only hear the, the trumpet or does the world hear the trumpet? What about the shout of God, the voice of the archangel, the shout of God? Are the people going to hear the shout of God? I think they will, personally. Now, I don't know, right? I'm, I'm, I'm spitballing here. I'm just sharing with you what my own heart is. It's my own opinion. I don't know that I can go to the Bible and say whether or not anybody hears the trumpet or not, but I think they will. I, I think the shout of God will be horrifying for the world because it's God shouting and the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God all at the same time. And then millions of Christians disappear. Tens of millions of Christians disappear. And then you've got to explain it. What will the newsreel be like on the next day? What will happen during that, that rapture? People have pointed out that Christian pilots will be taken out of planes. Planes will fall from the sky. Cars will crash into other cars. The moment of the rapture will be absolutely horrifying. And um, so, um, yeah, I, uh, I, I don't know whether or not other people are really going to be able to watch us go. I kind of feel like it's in a moment and twinkling of an eye. I don't know whether our clothes are left behind. 
Uh, I think Tim Bolahay believed that they would. I think other people I talked to who really concentrate on this area don't believe that they will. That's why I say, make sure your underwear is clean. All right, sorry to bring that up, but make sure it's clean um, because you don't want to leave behind dirty underwear for people to find. Um, I don't know. So I, all, all of this is speculation. It's kind of fun to speculate. That day will be a great day for us and a horrifying day for the, church, for, the, for the world. Jesus, the Bible says that God is not slack concerning his promises as some count slackness because God desires that all would be saved and all would come to the knowledge of the truth. There's a way that I want Jesus to return today and there's a day that I want him to wait so more people can get saved. But if I'm gonna have that heart, I wanna be doing the work of the gospel, seeing people come to, come to Christ and living wholeheartedly for him. So, um, yeah, I don't know if other people will be able to see us. Um, let me just read this, make sure I've got it. I know bodies change instantly at the rapture, yep. Um, but do you believe the rapture itself is instant? Yes, in a moment, the twinkle of an eye. Will those left behind watch us get caught up? Maybe, maybe they'll see something. Who knows? Pro you know, probably there's something that they'll see, I would think. But then again, I could be wrong. All right, so thank you very much. Fact check these hands uh, for that question. I think it's great. I love us being able to, uh, to take a look at these things. It is good to see you guys. Good to spend some time with you. Um, that's the end of our questions. So we're gonna go ahead and wrap it up. Um, right on time, 501. Uh, it's been good to see you guys. I hope you have a great week. Um, tonight, uh, Jason McKibben, one of our pastors, new pastors on staff, he's a youth pastor, will be speaking um, at Calvary Tucson. Join him. He's going to talk about our calling. Um, how we Do we know what our mission field is? Do we, do we have a vision for the calling that God's given us? He's going to be teaching out of Acts chapter 17. I think it's going to be great. Um, join him and uh, check out his study. I think you guys will really be blessed by it. Um, as I said, he's one of our newer pastors at the church. And uh, we just have so many good young and a little bit older guys who are good at teaching the word of God. And um, I'm a little stingy with the pulpit, so I don't miss much, but I am missing uh, tonight and I'll be watching him. It'll be starting in about an hour. So I look forward to seeing you guys there. All right. And um, stay close to Jesus. Love you. Appreciate you. And um, write down some questions you might have on Jason's study. Uh, we'll be talking a little bit about it on um, this coming up week. We'll be answering any questions that anybody's got. That's at calvarytucson.com or Calvary Tucson YouTube. You can also watch it on Facebook. Um, and uh, I appreciate you guys. And again, great community here. Love it. Love you guys. I'm going to go ahead and sign out. So I will see you guys later on.